We have been in a series on the book of Genesis. We did a little bit last year, and we are looking to conclude this year. It's a series entitled, Not Alone. And most of you who know me know that I, one of, one of my favorite books is Pilgrim's Progress. It's a one of the, it's actually one of the most popular books in the English language ever produced. It is second only to the Bible in terms of number of copies sold. So 250 million copies of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, John Bunyan is the author. He wrote this book in 1678 as an allegory of the Christian life to help Christians see both in his time and since then, what do we expect the Christian life to be like? I think often we expect some downs, um, some challenges, but mostly ups, mostly breakthroughs, mostly feeling like we're making this upward and onward progress. But the main character in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, he's fleeing the city of destruction and he's headed to the celestial city. And while he certainly experiences relief and the burden falls uh, off his back at the cross, uh, he experiences fellowship and the delight of fellowship with guys like Faithful and Hopeful. He experiences just the, the security of the key of promise he also encounters some, some places that have just had memorable names for me. The Slaw of Despond and the Hill of Difficulty, the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And then we read of Doubting Castle. It gives us a picture of real Christian life and the real Christian pilgrimage. Well, in the book of Genesis, Joseph's story is a great picture of real life. It spans decades, and we've been looking at the story of Joseph up to this point for, for many chapters. I'm, I'm pretty sure what we have seen in these pages is not what Joseph expected, and that may be an understatement. This, this story of Joseph unfolds similar to Pilgrim's Progress, but it's inspired by God to tell us, here's what the Lord has done to save and to transform his people. This is what he, he does. This is one way he does it. And it tells us what life is like. I think John Piper put this in just a, a poignant fashion. He says this. He says, life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next, and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, and not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange terms. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course 
and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So yes, God is plotting the course. That's what we see for Joseph. He plotted it for Joseph. He plotted it for his son, Jesus, as he sent his son into the world. And he is plotting your course, my course, for those same purposes, for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's consider the ways of God. If you have your Bible open to Genesis 41, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief cupbearer sorry, the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then in verses 17 through 24, Pharaoh retells his dream. Let's pick up at the end of verse 24. Pharaoh says, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
The seven cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather food in Gather in all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this with whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, 
Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing us to your word this morning, not just teaching our minds, but leading our hearts. Lord, that we might know you, that we might worship you, that we might stand in awe of you, that we might order our lives accordingly. I pray for your help today. Lord, I I pray you'd help us just as we Lord, receive from your bounty. And we lift up, Lord, our brothers and sisters in the faith, the the people we heard about in the video this morning, Lord, these churches, Lord, may the gospel be proclaimed, may souls be saved, may, Lord, people in new cities be reached with your word and with your gospel. I just thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in the Philippines and Korea and India and beyond. I thank you for what you're doing here in our city. Lord, that Jesus Christ might be believed on as the hope of the world. And so we come to you this morning. Help us to see Jesus. We thank you. We bless your name. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Well, God is plotting Joseph's course. And in so doing, we see the pit, the palace, and the proper time. So let's begin with the pit. Uh, Back in chapter 37, when we were introduced to Joseph, he was 17 years old. He was thrown into a pit by his brothers. They hated him. They were jealous of his father's favoritism toward him, so they stripped him of his robe, threw him in the pit. That was Joseph's first pit. Then after being sold into slavery and being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, Joseph was thrown into prison. And the prison is twice, both in chapter 40 and then in our passage, 41, 14, it is called a pit. And in this second pit, Joseph is forgotten by the cupbearer 
whom he had helped. And so these 13 years of Joseph's life, from one pit, now in a second pit, have largely looked the same. Life is the pits for Joseph. And so the day that Pharaoh dreamed these dreams, it probably started like any other day for Joseph. But that's how God gets things moving. In fact, throughout Genesis, we see God getting things moving in two main ways, dreams and famines. And he uses both here with Joseph. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world at the time. He was believed to be God incarnate, so the sun god Ra incarnate. And as the incarnation of God, he should know what dreams mean. And he should be able to keep the world of rain and sowing and harvesting in balance. But he can't. And he doesn't know what this dream means. So it says he calls all the magicians and the wise men of the land who are supposed to be able to interpret stuff like this, and they can't interpret it. Pharaoh had dreamed about seven plump cows being eaten by seven skinny cows. Then he dreamed a second time, seven plump ears of grain being eaten by seven thin ears of grain. Now, this, it says, he was troubled, and it is troubling I mean, you would be troubled if you saw something that can eat an entire cow and not gain any weight. Like, what kind of sick diet is this where you just eat and eat and eat and gain no weight? I, this is why I've always been suspect of skinny cow ice cream. And now I have a further reason to be troubled by it. But this, this confounding of Pharaoh, this confounding of the magicians, it's what makes the cupbearer remember Joseph interprets dreams. He had forgotten Joseph, but he uses this moment. He remembers that, yes, Joseph rightly interpreted the two dreams. And so Pharaoh calls Joseph. Verse 14, he clothes Joseph and he says, I hear that you can rightly interpret dreams. And look at Joseph's reply. Verse 16. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He's quick to deflect from himself and instead point to God. And this is not only accurate and humble, but church, this is a bold move. When he says God will give to Pharaoh, what he's exposing is Pharaoh's not really God after all. He's saying, there's a God, you're not him, I'm not him, but actually he is God and he's going to reveal this. Now, Pharaoh could have been insulted. He could have at that moment sent Joseph back to the pit, how dare you, But instead, he's desperate. And in his desperation, he's willing to receive from this God that he doesn't know. So he tells Joseph the dream. Joseph interprets the dreams. The two are one. The seven seven years of plenty will be followed by seven years of famine. And if we thought it was bold of him to bring up God in verse 16, 
and how that was a blow to Pharaoh being the true and living God. Verses 25 through 32, he just brings him up over and over and over again. Joseph says, God reveals, verse 25. He says, God shows, verse 28. He says in verse 32 that God fixes, that is, he determines or decides. And also in verse 32, he says, God will bring about. Pharaoh does not control famine, but his dreams are an invitation for him to come and respond to what God is doing, what God is revealing, what God is deciding. And then Joseph not just interprets the dream, but as you notice, he lays out a strong proposal with a lot of commands for the most powerful man on earth. He says in verses 33 through 36, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. Let Pharaoh set him over Egypt. Let Pharaoh institute a 20% tax during those seven years of plenty. Gather the food, keep the food, dispense the food. I mean, how bold he is before this man reminding Pharaoh, he's not God, there's a true and living God, and warning him about what he needs to do about it. If Joseph's moment with Pharaoh goes similar to every other moment he's had up to this point, he's headed back to the pit. But this is now the proper time. And so Joseph goes from the pit to the palace. From the pit to the palace. Joseph's faith is contagious. The Pharaoh concedes, yes, I need someone who has the spirit of God in him. And this was a huge concession on his part. So he exalts Joseph. He gives Joseph power. He gives him clothes, a signet ring, a new name, a wife, freedom. You know, each time that Joseph was going down to a pit, he had part of his clothes taken from him. So it was his robe, and then he was thrown in a pit. And it was his cloak that Potiphar's wife grabbed, and then he headed for another pit. Well, now, as he's being exalted, Pharaoh clothed him once, verse 14, and now he clothes him a second time, giving him royal robes. And God, who sent the dreams brought about the dreams just as he revealed. And Joseph, we we can miss this at times, Joseph could have easily squandered this opportunity of saving up food in preparation for the famine. That was a massive undertaking that God empowered. And so we're told, we're told in verses 50 through 52 that Joseph had two sons. And their names are significant. He names the firstborn Manasseh, saying, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. To name someone forget has a way of actually being a constant reminder, it's a way of not forgetting. He's remembering God's great work of reversal. 
So those 13 years from the time he was thrown into the first pit until he got exalted to the palace, those were some tough years for Joseph. But the exaltation that has now come makes those, the difficulty of those years seem insignificant in comparison. And there's this pattern that we see here with Joseph, and it's a pattern that continues throughout the Bible of humiliation followed by exaltation. And it culminates with Jesus. Just as Joseph had said in chapter 40, verse 15, I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So too, church, Jesus had done nothing wrong, nothing deserving death. You you hear that in his interrogation before Pilate. He was treated as though he had sinned, as though he had fallen short of God's perfect standard. And even though Jesus is the real incarnate God, he was bruised and beaten and stripped of his clothes. But God raised him from the dead. And God highly exalted him. And God gave him the name that is above every other name. The proper time came for Jesus. And after he was raised, after he was exalted, after, after it's proclaimed, bow the knee, it makes his suffering It brings it in perspective, simply insignificant. And church, this pattern of humiliation followed by exaltation, it continues after Jesus. This is the case of every follower of Jesus Christ. There will be suffering now, difficulty now, because we are his followers, but church, glory is coming. The great reversal is on its way for all who trust in Jesus. The glory will be so great that the affliction will seem so small. We hear this over and over again in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light, momentary, Affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. At the proper time, we will be exalted with Christ. We will be exalted like Christ. We will be exalted by Christ. And just like Joseph, he was, he was like, I'm, I'm made to forget now of all my hardships. So too, church. Those hardships will not get the final word. The persecution. Because, and you begin to to think about this, church, we can't say like Joseph or even like Jesus, "I, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve hard things. No, we, because of our sin, we deserve the pit. We deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus took our place, bore our sin, washes us, clothes us, and brings us to his palace to reign with him forever and ever. So he named his first son Manasseh. God has made me forget. 
And then he names his second son Ephraim or Ephraim. He says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The name Ephraim means twice fruitful. Now notice, Joseph was in a pit. He was in two different pits. He could have very easily named his son twice pitted. And and the accent could have been on the bad things that happened to him. But he summarizes his life instead of what, here's what God did in the midst of that affliction. In the midst of the suffering, God empowered me to be fruitful. He was fruitful in Potiphar's house, and heads were noticing. He was fruitful in the prison. And so he names his son twice fruitful. You know, in the book of Genesis, fruitfulness is a theme that comes up again and again because it started with God's mandate that he gave at creation. And he gave it to Adam, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Now that was before the fall, before sin and affliction came into the world. God was empowering and commanding fruitfulness. And with Joseph, we see, no, he's still empowering his people. There's a fruitfulness that no pit, no prison, no hatred, no jealousy, no false accusation can stop. And we get to Jesus years later. The Jewish leaders were calling for Jesus' crucifixion. They're trying to stop him. They're trying to get people not to believe in him, not to rest on him. Jesus not to be exalted. And what do they do? They just aid the fruitfulness of his sacrifice. And church, the same is true for us today. We can be fruitful even if we find ourselves afflicted. This is not home for the Christian. This world is not our home. This is a land of affliction. If you're a Christian, your fruitfulness does not depend on what's going on in the world right now. Your fruitfulness does not depend on having all good relationships with everyone. Your fruitfulness is not dependent on who wins the next election. As Christians, this world is not our home. And just as Joseph's exaltation came at the proper time, and Jesus' exaltation came at the proper time, so too all who are in Christ will be exalted with Christ at the proper time. The proper time. 1 Peter 5 puts it this way. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God exalted Jesus at the proper time. And God exalted Joseph at the proper time. But 13 years may have felt like, God, what are you waiting for? But 1 Peter 5 calls this just a little while. Compared with eternity, our life here and any affliction we experience here is just a little while. In 1 Peter 5, he mentions people suffering across the world. How long has that been going on? Well, it's only going to be a little while. And after a little while, Christ himself will restore, will confirm, will strengthen, and will establish all who trust in him. A little while will give way to eternity at the proper time. This is what God is doing. And so in Genesis, we, we've seen God is orchestrating a worldwide famine to work in and through this one family. He purposed to bless them. He purposed to make them a blessing to the nations. And so the pit gives way to the palace at the proper time. And from the palace, look what happens. Verse 55. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses. When Pharaoh says, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do, that is an echo. That's the same wording that Mary, the mother of Jesus, uses in John 2, verse 5, at the wedding of Cana. She says, do whatever he tells you. And just as the famished world came to Joseph for bread, Jesus calls himself the true bread that came down from heaven. The bread that if one eats, he won't die. The, the bread that satisfies. Through his death, through his resurrection, from his humiliation to his exaltation, Jesus opens the storehouses for a famished world to come to him. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whatever he says to you, do it. And he invites us to come. Come for spiritual bread. Come for spiritual sustenance. Come to Jesus. 
That's, the, that's what this story of Joseph is, is pointing us to. Come to Jesus for righteousness. Because without righteousness, we will perish. Come to Jesus for forgiveness. Because without his forgiveness, we will be condemned. Come to Jesus for life and for satisfaction. And just as people bowed the knee to Joseph, so Jesus is now the one before whom every knee will bow. Come to Jesus and feast on the bounty that is his and live forever. If I can invite the worship team to return. Church, in Genesis 41, we see a pattern. It's a pattern of the Christian life from the pit to the palace at the proper time. Christians worldwide are suffering. This morning, as we are faithful to God, faithful to our Savior, we will suffer. 2 Timothy 3 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And yet, it's only for a little while. At the proper time, Jesus will exalt his people. He will make us forget all of our hardships. Like like the name Manasseh, the Lord has made me forget. We will forget all of our hardships. And like the name Ephraim, where we're celebrating fruitfulness, we will bask together in glory in the fruitfulness that he has empowered. And so as we anticipate that time, let us come to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've yet to believe on him, he offers spiritual life, eternal life. But you got to come to him. You got to bow the knee. You got to recognize your need and his bounty. Let us receive his bounty and let us bless his name, church, and tell of his kindness. 1 Peter 5 says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for making a way for us to be reconciled to you, Lord, that the bad things of this world that can happen to us, the bad things of this world that we add to through our own sin are not going to get the final word. We thank you, Lord, that exaltation is coming for all who trust in Jesus. And I pray you would direct our hearts this morning for all who know you, Lord, to find our satisfaction in you, our comfort, that that hope, Lord, to bear up against hardships in this life that are on account of being followers of Christ. Lord, I pray as well for any who have been sitting on the fence, have been sitting back, who are literally dying of famine, they would come to Jesus. We thank you that you've made a way. We bless you, Lord, that you have brought us out of the pit. 
and that you will exalt us with Christ at the proper time. It is your name we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.